Thanks for listening and subscribe today for our new Substack newsletter. That's Michael Medved's context, placing today's big events in the unique perspective of our past and our future. Go to michaelmedved.substack.com and sign up today for my uncensored take on current controversies. daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to appreciate this great nation. Why particularly today? Well, there are legal procedures going on in Washington, D.C. and over in Georgia and across the country that uh, try to affirm the principle that nobody is below the law or above the law. Uh, There's a question that was placed to Donald Trump's lawyer uh, by one of the judges who was hearing the case about his immunity from prosecution in Washington, D.C. That involves his actions surrounding the January 6th riots. The... um, Judge asked uh, President Trump's lawyer, could a president who ordered Navy SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political foe, and that president was not impeached for some reason, could he be subject to criminal prosecution? Uh, There's a very controversial answer provided by President Trump's lawyer. President Trump is there sitting in the case. We will talk about that with uh, John Yu, a professor of law, federal Bush administration official, leading judicial conservative, uh, and a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley. He will be uh, joining us uh, in short order to talk about all of the cases pertaining very directly to the presidency. And and this is at a time when, uh, believe it or not, we are just, uh, what is it, it's uh, eight days away from the uh, Iowa caucuses, and that means we are two weeks away from uh, the New Hampshire primary, and there is a big new poll, a CNN poll, that shows that the New Hampshire primary could be a very close race between Donald J. Trump, the front runner, and Nikki Haley, who is a, a challenger who, despite her gaffes about the Civil War, which won't be the biggest uh, issue facing the country, I hope, that we're not going to be debating about a new Civil War. But uh, that is a... Um, not an issue that appears to have stopped the momentum for Nikki Haley so far. We will get to that. We will also be speaking uh, to an issue that could be crucial in the New Hampshire, pardon me, in the Iowa caucuses, which is the first time that Republicans will actually get to cast ballots electing delegates who will help to choose a presidential nominee this summer when the uh, uh, convention occurs in, uh, in Wisconsin. Okay, uh, with all of that, one of the issues that President Trump has been hitting very strongly is the persecution of Christians. And the war against Christianity as he sees it 
where he believes that the only way to protect Christianity from persecution and from the war against it is to put him back in the White House. Uh, we will discuss that with Russell Moore, who is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, and he is a former uh, top official for the uh, Southern uh, Baptist Convention for the largest group of evangelical Christians by denomination. Uh, Russell Moore will be joining us later in the show. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. And there has been a lot of mystery that was just solved this morning, a uh, mystery about the condition of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who uh, had been treated at Walter Reed uh, Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., clearly was having some health, health issues. We now know uh, what those health issues are. Uh, this is clip 16 uh, with the Pentagon News Conference where it was revealed what exactly the problem has been for our uh, general, who is a uh, the pre uh, the defense secretary, the Pentagon head for the Biden administration. Listen. And for the sake of ensuring that everyone here today and everyone watching has the same information, I will read that full statement. Uh, this is a statement from Dr. John Maddox, Trauma Medical Director, and Dr. Gregory Chestnut, Center for Prostate Disease Research of the Mirtha Center Director at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, beginning uh, the statement. As part of Secretary Austin's routinely recommended health screening, he has undergone regular prostate-specific antigen PSA surveillance. Changes in his laboratory evaluation in early December 2023 identified prostate cancer, which required treatment. On December 22, 2023, after consultation with his medical team, he was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and underwent a minimally invasive surgical procedure called a prostatectomy to treat and cure prostate cancer. He was under general anesthesia during this procedure. Secretary Austin recovered uneventfully from his surgery and returned home the next morning. His prostate cancer was detected early and his prognosis is excellent. On January 1st, 2024, Secretary Austin was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center with complications from the December 22nd procedure. Okay, uh, the nature of the, uh, the complications also uh, not uh, seem to be life-threatening in any sense. The, uh, uh, as I know, as a former cancer patient myself, having uh, suffered from stage three uh, squamous cell throat cancer, throat and tongue cancer, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the prognosis for my form of cancer was good. The prognosis for a prostate cancer, if it is properly and it diagnosed in a timely manner, as it clearly was here, is excellent. And uh, the fact that he underwent on December 22nd a prostatectomy, uh, this is not one of those things where, oh my goodness, how could this have been kept secret for so long? Because of the nature of prostate cancer, because of the part of the body that we're talking about here, 
I think it's understandable that uh, General Austin would would feel that uh, he didn't really want to talk about it publicly as much as someone might feel free to talk about another form of uh, cancer. In any event, now, of course, the entire matter is uh, public. And the, the truth of the matter is that I, I do think it's very, very likely that however long uh, Joe Biden continues as our president, and uh, again, he, every chance in the world it's going to be a close election, and we don't at all know that it is sure that he will be reelected, I think it is a fairly strong bet that uh, Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defense, will recover and will continue to serve. Uh, one of the things that uh, there also is very clear is that this is going to be a very, very eventful two or three weeks that we have just entered into at the beginning of this new year because there is clear information and there have been several articles, uh, some of them very persuasive, that President Trump has a strategy to win decisively in both Iowa and New Hampshire. And if he does, if he performs winning 50% of the total vote or more, he could feel that he has already locked up the nomination as this nomination fight is just beginning. So uh, will that be impacted by some of the political judgments, including the judgment on his claim of absolute immunity for anything that a president or a former president would do. We'll discuss that with Professor John Yu of the University of California coming up on the MedVet Show. Medved Show. It is always a distinct honor to welcome to the show uh, Professor John Yu, who is the holder of the Emanuel S. Heller Chair in Law as a distinguished professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's the author most recently of the best-selling book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Yu, uh, what a busy day for you, and I appreciate your making the time. Uh, in terms of the hearing today that President Trump attended, and he wasn't commanded or subpoenaed or pressured to attend, he decided he wanted to be there in the courtroom. This is among three appellate judges, all of them, as it happens, female. And uh, uh, were you surprised at any of the exchanges that occurred this morning during uh, this hearing? No, I wasn't, Michael. Uh, and part of it is because I think this court has already signaled its hand and how it's going to come out. 
they issued a decision a few months ago in the lawsuit against President Trump by one of the Capitol Police officers who was harmed on January 6th. And if you look at that opinion, that's the opinion that drove, I think, a lot of the questioning today. In that opinion, the D.C. Circuit judges, different set of judges, but it was the chief judge of the court who wrote the opinion. They said the president basically doesn't have immunity for things that don't fall within the official office of the job. And so uh, if you could characterize what president did on January 6th as not involving his job, but involving his efforts as a candidate, his efforts to run for reelection and so on, then he has no immunity. Uh, I think that's what this court's going to do again when it comes to this related but different question, is the president immune from federal prosecution too? And uh, in terms of uh, uh, what I think the public is seeing here, uh, would you say that the strategy of the Trump legal team seems to be uh, to try to delay this entire process so that the president uh, doesn't need to face uh, trial? I believe the trial is uh, right now supposed to be starting in March. Uh, that he doesn't need to face the trial so early in the electoral process and maybe even that the proceedings could be put off until after the November election. Is that what they're trying to do? Gosh, yeah, I agree. Michael, if they weren't trying to do that, they'd be guilty of malpractice. Because, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's even if he weren't running for election, that would be what his lawyers should do because this is a huge, complicated case just these basic threshold issues like can the president even be prosecuted right where can the president be prosecuted what can he be prosecuted for haven't been decided yet usually that takes months and months if not years to handle it's really unusual for the u.s attorney i'm sorry the special counsel here jack smith to press and the trial judge here to press for such a quick start to the trial and then you add on top of that as you said michael the election schedule I I think I'm sure President Trump is um, sensitive to the polls that show that support for him goes down a lot if he's convicted of a felony, particularly amongst independents. And so I would think his political and legal strategy happily are in agreement, which is get everything postponed till as far after November as you can. Uh, One of the questions that I think that people who are strong supporters and defenders of President Trump have put would be if, if, say, uh, President Trump ends up being convicted in the charges brought against him by the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, involving his behavior concerning uh, January 6th, uh, could President Bush say... Uh, be prosecuted uh, by some activists or some activists' uh, office holders? Could President Bush be prosecuted for war crimes or President Obama for, well, you could name it? Will this open up the prosecution of other former presidents? That that is, I think, President Trump's best argument uh, and the one that his lawyers really focused on in the oral arguments today is that to say the president has no immunity would be to open up 
the floodgates to potential political persecution of the kind we see, unfortunately, in other countries uh, all around the world where you win the election and then you turn the power of the state against your former political rivals. Now, we can't say that's happened in American history before because no president has ever been prosecuted before. We can't, you know, we have to be honest and say we don't really know whether that would happen. But it would, you're right, Michael, legally you would be able to open the door to that. I think actually this is a case where uh, this may have always been possible from the very beginning, but no matter how bad past presidents have been, our political leaders have always shown good judgment. You know, they were prudence. Um, they, they, they decided to put aside the urge to investigate their predecessors, even if they legally might have been able to. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking about their legally being able to, uh, assume that President Trump is actually elected. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are anticipating, and he's even encouraged the anticipation that he would pardon himself, that he would call off all the at least federal prosecutions against him. Uh, do you think that President Trump as president could uh, get his Justice Department to go after President Biden, say, for malfeasance regarding uh, border security? You know, that's a hard one. You know, the, you could easily see uh, President Trump ordering the Justice Department to pursue Hunter Biden and maybe Joe Biden for, you know, for corruption based on all the foreign monies that were being raised by Hunter and where they were distributed. Uh, I think it would be harder in fact, I think both presidents have a reasonable defense, which is to say uh, presidents may not have an immunity, but they can't be prosecuted for doing things which are in their – which are valid exercises of their constitutional authority. Congress couldn't, for example, make it a crime for a president to fire the attorney general. Right? That's just – do presidents have that right under the Constitution? So there's got to be some limit to being able to prosecute former presidents. Where Trump might have gone too far here is to say, I have complete immunity. Every time I'm acting as president, I'm just immune. I bet the D.C. Circuit is going to try to find something in between those two polls. And some kind of rule like that would also protect a President Biden for being prosecuted in the future for, say, for example, not enforcing the laws on the border vigorously enough. Okay, when we come back, and I'm delighted to have uh, Professor Hughes staying with us for a few moments. What about that Colorado case where President Trump's name is taken off the ballot? Uh, that case is in the process of being appealed. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear it. Uh, any chance that they would support Colorado's right to take President Trump off the ballot? We'll continue the conversation here on The Medved Show. On the Michael Medved Show, talking with John Hugh, professor of law at University of California at Berkeley, the author of the best-selling book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court, uh, and talking about the hearings that were attended by President Trump today. His lawyers weren't silent. President Trump, for the most part, was. 
I wanted to play for you um, just one quick uh, excerpt from the hearings today before we uh, we go on to the question of the Colorado case, which could change the entire direction and nature of this election because the uh, Supreme Court of Colorado has held that uh, President Trump is going to be stricken from the ballot there. Uh, and all of this is depending now upon a Supreme Court judgment. But Judge Florence U. Pan uh, had a, a question for Trump's lawyer, John Sauer, that was extremely provocative. Uh, here is the question. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution. If what if he weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that? Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our constitutional tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked you a yes or yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team Six to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first, and so, so your answer is. Is, no. is my answer is qualified yes. Uh, what do you, what do you think, uh, Professor Yu? Uh, well, his answer really there was no. <laughs> but, <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I I don't know if I told you this, Michael. I actually clerked in that uh, court, the D.C. Circuit, and uh, listened to many oral arguments. I probably listened to over a hundred oral arguments in that very uh, courtroom. And sometimes they say the judges of the D.C. Circuit are better than the ones on the Supreme Court. <laughs> uh, that was the judge. That was the circuit where Bork came from and Scalia, the judge I quote for Silverman, very tough judges. And you could see that in that clip. That judge did not let him get away with wiggling, wiggling out of the question. The problem that the question points out, uh, which we didn't get to, is that part of Trump's argument is that the president can only be prosecuted for things that happen in office for which the president was impeached and convicted and removed from office. And I just think that's not a correct reading of the Constitution. I think the one reason why presidents don't have an immunity is because the constitutional text specifically talks about prosecuting presidents. It says that you can impeach and remove them, and then after they're out of office, you can prosecute them. So I think it's very hard for Trump's lawyers to say as a judge's question pointed out that, oh, well, a president could commit a crime, but if they're not impeached, then they can't be prosecuted. Yeah, again, especially when you're talking about a former president, that that becomes an intense question. Speaking of intense questions, uh, right now, the decision by the Colorado Supreme Court is basically on hold pending what people assume will be some kind of rapid judgment by the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, do you think there is any chance at all that they will simply allow the Colorado decision to stand uh, without making some kind of sweeping judgment for the potential action of other states, which, uh, like Maine, that uh, are, are have already acted to take Trump's name off the ballot? Um, 
You know, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, I might well be filing an amicus brief at the court about this question um, because I have written about it before already. Uh, it seems to me that the reason the court took the Colorado case now so quickly, I mean, for, for the court to take a case this fast is is like light speed for the Supreme Court and to oral argument and bri- the order briefing and arguments all to take place in just a few weeks. I mean, we're going to have the uh, case will be argued, uh, you know, within less than a I guess about a month from now, that's incredibly fast for the Supreme Court. And so the, it seems to me the only reason they are doing that is so that they can answer the question now before you start getting other states following the example of Maine or other places and deciding for themselves whether Trump can be on the, on the ballot or not based on the 14th Amendment. So I think what the court's doing is decide it quickly so that there's one single rule throughout the country so that you don't get 50 different approaches to who's disqualified or not for the election. And uh, President Trump has commented that he's confident about the outcome of the Supreme Court. He said because he he, uh, knows how hard he fought for the confirmation of Justice uh, Kavanaugh. (laughs) He he assumes that Judge Kavanaugh won't forget. That seems to me to be probably a misguided approach, but uh, is it likely that this will be a unanimous decision in uh, favor of Trump? I don't think it's going to be unanimous. Uh, I think you can even see at the Colorado Supreme Court, it wasn't, you know, God, I wish it would be unanimous. I really think that, uh, to me, that, and that's why I think about writing a brief, it seems to me that the 14th Amendment just does not apply to the president here, and it would require anyway some kind of law to be passed by Congress to do things like define what insurrection is, to tell you what kind of evidence you need, you know, to describe what the crime is, which is not set out anywhere in the Constitution. Uh, The things that Trump is saying, unfortunately, would be the very things that would urge the justices not to vote for him, because the last thing they want to do is actually give rise to the impression that they are voting to keep Trump on the ballot because Trump appointed them to the Supreme Court. That would be almost designed to have the opposite outcome. He's really hurting his own case by saying things like that in public. Yes, I, I strongly agree. But uh, in terms of if uh, they strike down the Colorado decision, uh, is there an easy way to uh, make it clear that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, can't be applied by other states? Uh, yes, I think the way the court could do it is to, it's two ways. Without the court having to say anything about Trump being involved or not in anything called an insurrection, one, they could just say it doesn't apply to the president. If you read the 14th Amendment's text, it applies to members of Congress, even state officers of government. Uh, and what's called officers of the United States, even presidential electors. But it doesn't say president or vice president. So it could just say, look, this provision doesn't talk about the president or vice president being disqualified regardless. Uh, And that would be consistent with the way president is used throughout the rest of the Constitution. The other way they could do it is say no state can carry this out until federal law has been passed. They could just say, look, we need to have Congress implement the law, pass a statute that defines what an insurrection is. Until they've done that, states are not allowed to try to carry out the 14th Amendment here on their own visions of what it means. 
and uh, and that that of course could pre- prevent other states from going in that direction. I think that the one thing that many people are most afraid of is sort of a checkerboard pattern where Trump is stricken from some ballots, but not from all of them, where you have, say, he's on the ballot in 30 states, but not in all 50. There's no chance, really, of that, is there? Uh, That was, I think, a possibility until the Supreme Court decided to take the case. Uh, This is why we have a Supreme Court, is so that we don't have 50 different interpretations of the Constitution and federal law. Their their main function in life, (laughs) the reason that we pay their paychecks is so that they go and decide, here's the single uniform national meaning of the 14th Amendment. And couldn't be more important than a case like this. Always important and rewarding to speak to John Hugh, the Emanuel S. Heller Chair in Law, Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, the author of the delightful book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. We will be right back. Happy New Year, Judge. And on the Michael Medved Show, again, to welcome uh, all of our new listeners in Oklahoma City. And uh, with great thanks to uh, Mike Miller, who is the general manager at uh, station KTLR AM 890 and uh, KTLR uh, FM 103.7 FM, uh, both that are carrying our show live, which we're thrilled to see, uh, all three hours every day. That's 2 to 5 p.m. Oklahoma City time. And uh, thanks so much for those who are joining us and who may be new to the show. Our phone number, by the way, here is 1-800-955-1776. The uh, hearing today was, was interesting and compelling. It is also uh, unusual that President Trump decided to attend the hearing personally to follow the proceedings. He was seen making notes and obviously has strong opinions on all of this. But uh, one of the exchanges that was most significant was an exchange from Judge Karen Henderson concerning uh, Trump's claim that he is immune from criminal prosecutions uh, for actions that are taken while he was president. Uh, president Trump is insisting, and his legal team is insisting, that a president has absolute immunity because you can judge the job of a president very broadly. And what they are saying is that the effort to uh, to invalidate the results of the election of 2020, that was part of President Trump's job as he saw it to make sure that an election wasn't stolen. So uh, here is a Judge Karen Henderson on Trump's claim that he is immune from criminal prosecutions for actions taken while he is president. Clip 12. What I'm asking, which is, I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to 
violate criminal laws. Now, we're at the motion to dismiss stage. The government has charged the specific criminal laws. We have to assume they're true. I mean, my response to that, I think, would be to emphasize what Chief Justice Marshall said in Marbury, which is that they can never be examined by courts. That naturally includes a criminal proceeding. Oh, okay, that's uh, John Sauer uh, speaking, uh, the attorney for President Trump, lead attorney in this case. Uh, Trump himself spoke about absolute immunity and his concept of that. He spoke about that outside the federal appeals court hearing in Washington. Clip five. It's a very sad thing that's happened with this whole situation. Uh, when they talk about uh, threat to democracy, that's your real threat to democracy. And I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. And if you don't, as an example, if uh, this case were lost on immunity, and I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong. I'm working for the country. And I worked on uh, very hard on voter fraud because we have to have free elections. We have to have strong borders. We have to have free elections. Those two things, almost above all. Uh, strong borders and free elections. And uh, then uh, he talked about what he considered would be the negative impact to the country if uh, he loses this case, which, by the way, is, is very, very widely expected will happen. They are not going to grant a president absolute immunity for anything that he does while president. Uh, but if they make that decision, here's what President Trump appears would happen to the country that would damage our country profoundly. This is clip four. And I think we're doing very well. I think it's very unfair when a opponent, a political opponent, is prosecuted by the DOJ, by Biden's DOJ. Uh, so they're losing in every poll. They're losing in almost every demographic. Uh, numbers came out today that are uh, really very mind-boggling if you happen to be Joe Biden. And I think they feel this is the way they're going to try and win. And that's not the way it goes. That'll be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. It's a very bad precedent. As we said, it's the opening of a Pandora's box. Okay, and uh, the idea that it's a very bad thing, that it's a, a very bad moment for the United States, uh, there's a, a commentary that I just loved and that I'm very eager to share with you, uh, a commentary by... <clears throat> Gerard Baker, who is one of the editors at the Wall Street Journal, and he writes today about uh, being sworn in as a new natural born, uh, uh, reborn, naturalized American citizen. He's British originally, of course. And uh, Gerard Baker writes, I've lived here in the United States for two thirds of my adult life, and I've long known it was my home. But the tug of nostalgia and uh, the weight of inertia had combined for too long to keep me from taking the last step. You won't ever persuade me to pronounce glass, uh, persuade me to pronounce glass or grass as though it rhymes with crass, and you should certainly shoot me if you ever hear me describe anything other than the divine as awesome. But here I am, naturalized, like hot dogs, 
denim, and democracy. Not made in America, but definitely improved here. If the pundits, your columnist included, are right, there will be many opportunities for indulging un-American pessimism and self-loathing in 2024. But allow me to start my first year as one of us by expressing deep gratitude for what my adopted country means and offering a gentle reminder to the many of my apparently dispirited and disillusioned compatriots of what an extraordinary and enviable privilege it remains to be able to call yourself an American. I genuinely don't think many Americans, and this applies to people of all political persuasions, properly understand the uniquely benign place this country occupies in the history of human progress and how for all its flaws it retains that standing. We know that a large and increasingly influential number on the left have long despised their country for all the venomous anti-American rhetoric spouted around the world. No one can hold a candle to Americans themselves when it comes to dissing America. In recent years, he writes, and I think this is very important, the far less disparagement of their country has gone from a fringe pursuit to a disturbingly dominant orthodoxy, especially among the young. What we have seen play out in university campuses in the last few months reminds us how deeply embedded in our elite consciousness this idea of America as the primary executor of human oppression has become. But here, listen. He then says, the hold this ideology has on so many of our institutions has led some on the right to a curiously complementary and in their case quite new rejection of faith in America. In their telling, and here he's talking about gloom and doomers on the right, the nation is in the grip of a corrupt authoritarianism, an ideologically exclusive command structure that demands fealty to its extremist nostrums. It will cancel critics, subvert the law as a weapon against them, uh, rig elections to ensure its attendance, ascendance. Their fear and loathing of this new regime is so advanced that in their view the U.S. is morally no better than, say, Putin's Russia, and that to overcome it, the niceties of Republican liberalism must be discarded. I don't dismiss the threat to traditional American values posed by the left. But as a newly minted American, writes Gerard Baker, as a newly minted American, I feel it important to rebut this idea that the crisis of the past decade somehow means American democracy itself has failed. Uh, President Trump has a somewhat different point of view. He um, expressed it on uh, Lindell TV in an interview with Lou Dobbs where he issued a warning about 2024. Uh, listen, clip 14. Uh, we will get to uh, that clip and to the controversial statement that Trump talks about a potential crash for the economy and says that if there is going to be a crash, he wants it to happen sooner rather than later. Why? He's very specific about why. We will get to that and to much more, including new warnings about the war, so-called, against Christianity. That and more coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.